So we are still on page one. We're still in Genesis chapter one. And, um, you know, last week uh, we talked about uh, the fact that God created us in his image, in his likeness, that he created us male and female. That was one of the conversations that we had. And it did lead to some interesting feedback. And I just, I think anytime we get into something that kind of intersects with where our culture is, seems to be caring about in the moment, and we seem to have some sort of conflict with our culture, then it creates kind of this turmoil in people. And one of the really interesting parts about our church is that we're really diverse when it comes to our politics. And I don't really talk about politics very much. All I would do is make everybody mad if I talked about politics, because uh, I would make the conservatives mad because I'm a libertarian, and I would make the, the, the left mad because I'm a libertarian. So everybody would just be mad at me, and it would be not a great thing. So we don't generally talk about politics. But in this case, it kind of drudged up some of that conservative, sort of left, sort of some of those tension issues. And I appreciate the fact that our small groups work through some of those issues, that people who were asking questions asked questions and didn't want to grind an axe. I had a lot of really productive conversations with people this week. And I think there's a couple things that I want to make sure that I just say about anytime we talk about a sensitive topic like that, that yes, God's truth does not uh, line with our culture It doesn't, and it puts us in a place all the time where we have to decide, am I going to believe what God has written here and given to us, or am I going to go down the path of letting the culture decide what is true for me, and then trying to figure out how God's word fits into it? And we definitely take the, the, the side of honoring God's word and saying, this is our ultimate truth, and that can sometimes conflict with our culture, and it can be difficult. But these are things we can always work through, and I appreciate the fact that we have diversity in thought among our people, that there's a lot of different ways that you can look at things and still be a Christian, still agree on the core things that make us Christians, on the fact that Jesus is who he says he is and his word is what, it, what we think it is, and we do value these things higher than other things. And some of these issues where we don't necessarily have to agree 100%, we can have some rigorous debate and conversation and still love each other at the end of the day, and I don't know if that's a value for our culture very much either. So... I appreciate it. I appreciate it when people give me feedback, want to ask questions about things, want to kind of fight through it with their small group. I love that idea. I think we should be doing that. And I think God's word is not so easy sometimes to process. And it does bring us to crisis points sometimes where we say, am I going to believe God's word or am I going to believe what the culture around me says? And we have to fight through those things. So good job, church. Just want to say that. Um, and then I want to say one other thing, you know, and this is just something to consider. I think the world is often saying, um, uh, you know, I need, I need your validation, right? Here's the thing that I'm creating my uh, identity around, and this is the thing the culture thinks is important. If, if you're a non-Christian, you're definitely you're creating your identity around these issues that we talked about last week, the sort of buffet of co- what culture offers us. And they're saying, I need you to validate me for these choices that I'm making. I need you to, to celebrate me, and I need you to honor these choices that I'm making, and I need you to you know, uh, go down this path with me. And as a Christian, you don't need anyone else to validate you. You don't need to be celebrated by anyone. You don't need any of that because that, in its essence, comes from your relationship with God. Okay? I don't need to validate your choices if they're godly choices. God has already validated those choices. Right? God is already celebrating that choice. And uh, I did talk to somebody one time, and they said, you know, um, you know, the recommendation was, I want to go to a church that celebrates me. 
and celebrates my, my choices. And I just want to say to you, that will not be this church. We do not celebrate you or your choices. We celebrate Jesus Christ. We celebrate his word. We celebrate and honor his way. And all of us should be excited to be part of that relationship with God where we are validated and we do have that uh, ability to connect with God and have that relationship with God. So for what it's worth, you know, we're not going to celebrate any person. We're going to celebrate Jesus here. And we're not going to celebrate one way of thinking. We're going to have a lot of different people from all kinds of different perspectives who all agree that Jesus is the most important thing. The gospel is the central thing that we care about. And so that's where we stand as a church. And I just, um, you know, felt, I felt that this week. It was really great. Um, and this week, I don't think there's going to be a lot of controversy. So you came to a good one. I don't think anyone's going to want to fight with me this week. Um, but next week, we're talking about marriage. And gender is a part of that as well. And there's, that's a... God's idea of what marriage is does not align with the culture around us, so that one will be an interesting one on Father's Day. Um, you know, just doing the nice controversial ones on the, on Father's Day. That's a that's a nice uh, way of doing it. But so, and then you know, again, as we're studying sort of Genesis one here and kind of looking at the way that God began this, this it's not going to always align with culture. That's okay. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to preach out of God's word. So that's what we're going for. So um, today, I want to talk about. Uh, work. That's why we asked you the question ahead of time, what was your weirdest job? My, my weirdest job uh, was for a summer, um, I got paid, I think, like somewhere in the ballpark of like six bucks an hour, um, which I didn't mind at all. I believe that might have been the minimum wage or just a little bit more than the minimum wage in like 1995. I was the ball boy, the New Haven Ravens AA baseball franchise. And uh, the first day I went out there, and I was 15 years old, and I loved baseball. I played it my whole life growing up, and uh, went out there, and they handed me this ball boy uniform, and it was for like a nine-year-old. It was like, and I was a big 15-year-old. Like, I was a, you know, large dude. And so I kind of just like squeezed this thing on, and it was the most uncomfortable game. So when the game was over, I uh, went to the, like, the... Um, merchandise shop in the in the um, stadium and bought a brand new New Haven Ravens jersey. It was pretty sweet. So I got one that fit me and everything. And so the next day I came back out and I was like, I don't need your jersey. I got this one right here. And uh, and the players got mad because they were wearing used jerseys that were a couple years old. And here I was with a bright, shining, brand new, had the current logo on it. I think they were wearing the old ones that should have been thrown away. Like, this was not like a top flight kind of situation here. Uh, this was a very low, low end double uh, A baseball franchise. And so, for the entire year, I looked better on the field than the rest of the team, and they didn't like me at all. And it was something. So, a whole summer, I did the New Haven Ravens ball boy position. So, there you go. And I think I was 15, and I think the job was meant for a nine year old, and I reveled in every second of it. Um, and so you may not, may not think about this. Like, I don't know what your job situation looks like or how you've thought about work. Um, but I know for me, this was a kind of a, there was a crisis moment in my life when I thought about work at about 20 years old. At, when I was 20 years old, I was, uh, I was going to the University of Connecticut, uh, and I was in the business program at the University of Connecticut. I was working at an uh, insurance company. I had started out selling insurance on the phone, you know, people would call in. I was not the guy that called out, okay? So don't 
you know, give me a hard time about that. I wasn't like bothering people while they were having dinner or anything. People would call in. It was, uh, we, we exclusively sold insurance for AARP. So I was only speaking to older people. And I just got really good at befriending lonely old people and just sweet-talking them. I was just one of those things I was really awesome at. You're like, I don't know if I want my pastor to have that skill. That actually sounds kind of creepy. Um, it was. It was super creepy. I was really good at just being friends with old people on the phone. And so I immediately sold tons of insurance policies, just helping people out and trying to figure out what they needed and trying to help them get what they were looking for. And um, immediately rose kind of to the top of my uh, unit in, in sales and then started looking at other jobs. And I, I took a job out of sales and into IT, because at the time when I was in, in the business program, I just wanted to try other parts of the business. So I went into IT, and I immediately started doing a phone job where I would basically, people would call in from inside the company when they had a problem, ejecting their laptop from the base or you know fixing something or whatever. And I basically did the night shift from about four to about two, and I basically was watching kind of the servers, and I was helping people fix stuff and kind of doing IT work. And I remember one day I walked into, uh, into work, and I sat down, and I looked across my cubicle. There was a guy who was, who was sitting here, and he was pointing this way, and I was sitting here and pointing this way. And I just remember this like, very clear moment where this guy, he, kinda, he was kind of in his mid-40s, and he looked kind of like he was bald, and he looked kind of sweaty, and he had a goatee, and he was just like drinking as much Diet Coke as he could get in his veins, and he looked stressed out, and I just looked at him and I thought, like, that's where I'll be if I stay in this job. Now, I, you can see I didn't get that far from it. <laughs> uh, but I, I looked at it and I just, I, I asked this existential question as a 20-year-old, and I know guys in their 20s, like, we're stupid still, like, we don't know what we're doing. Um, and it just, it was one of those moments of clarity, and I really step back and I look at it and I say, this was like God breaking through the sort of haze of what was going on in life, you know, just going to school and doing work and doing what I was supposed to do and kind of going through it where I just stepped back and said, oh, what is going to be fulfilling? Like, what should I be doing? It was like a dangerous question to ask. And I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question, what should I be doing? Or what would bring me joy in life? Or what, you know, I think a lot of us are in jobs where we aren't fulfilled and we're just kind of grinding we're just kind of going through life, and I'm, I'm going to get to that situation more in a moment here. But I asked that question, and I just, at the end of the day, my answer was, I can't just do a job where all I'm doing is working on things, like making sure the server works, making sure this computer is was working. Like, I can't just be solving problems for people who are just selling insurance. Like, something about it seemed insignificant when I really stepped back and looked at it. Like, it wouldn't be valuable, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't scratch the itch that I was feeling, that sort of existential question, what should I be doing? Now, at the exact same time, I was also leading a middle school ministry, and I've told you guys about this before, where it was literally Taco Bell ministry. I would just, like, load up my car with kids after church, and we'd go to Taco Bell, talk about Jesus, and that was, like, the, at the time, the most fulfilling thing that I was doing. And I felt like God was kind of giving me these two pictures. He was saying, like, hey, you are craving and looking forward to talking about Jesus with middle schoolers. And, like, nobody else wants to do that. And you are dreading going into a job every day where you sit in a cubicle and you just make sure that stuff works. Like, 
this is not fulfilling, this is fulfilling. And it was that thought and that exercise that kind of took me down a path of asking the question, what should I be doing? And that answer for me was to be in ministry. It was to be in youth ministry specifically at that time and has led me to this place. And I'm not saying this is not going to be the end of this sermon that everybody should be in ministry. See, I actually believe the exact opposite. I think most of us should be in the marketplace, in the workplace, doing something that is, is fulfilling to us, but also doing something in the place that God has planted us and put us that makes a difference in this world for him. And our work should bring us joy in the fact that we get to serve people and we get to work for their benefit and we get to create God's kingdom where he has planted us and put us. And still, at the end of the day, hopefully the work is something that is worth it for you or, or fulfilling for you. So let me just show you kind of, kind of got how God started all this and what his intention was for us. And we're going back to the first page, Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 26 here. Uh, so take a look with me, if you will. 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the, air, of the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every other living creature that moves on the ground. And the next verse is uh, a verse that uh, only people who smoke weed have memorized. It's the only verse that weed people love, and it's talking about every seed-bearing tree is for you, and it's not about weed at all. So if you want to talk about that sometime, we can. So God puts us in this garden, and I'll talk more about that in a second, but, and he gives us this this job. The first job that we were given was to sort of tend to the creation of God, right? And in this, in this story, we're here, we've just gotten through day six in the first chapter here, and so God has created every single thing. He's created everything, day one, day two, day three, day four, and we're on day six. We're the pinnacle of creation. And then he puts us in this creation that he's given, and he says to, you, to us, hey, there's a, there's a reason that you're here. And the reason that you're here is, is what? It's in that last verse. It's to, to multiply. Some, some of our families are really good at multiplying around here. Uh, I don't know how it's possible. Uh, some people have five, six, seven kids. I don't even know. I lose track. People are like, that family? I don't know how many kids they have. I lost track a couple years ago. Um, yeah. So multiply. And then he tells us that we should have dominion, your, your verse may, or your Bible translation may say, or to rule, or to uh, subdue. That's the word that's used here in the... And I think all these words, what we're missing here is that this language that's used is almost like, if, if we could go back to kind of, kind of what we grew up with, like it's almost prince and princess language. It's almost like kingdom language. The idea of having dominion over something or ruling over something or subduing something, are, it's all the same concept. The word is very hard to translate, but it basically kind of gives us this picture of having uh, this kingdom where we are the princes and princesses of this kingdom. I know it kind of connects to something very deep inside of us. It's almost like when we are telling our kids about princes and princesses and all of these other 
ways in Disney stuff and all these, these other, there's actually something that connects deep that we were actually made to be in charge and to rule and to have dominion and to be able to work the creation of God. But in that phrase, there's also something that would have been caught by a sort of a first century Jewish person or even like earlier than that, kind of a pre-first century Jewish person that we don't catch, that we're actually invited into something, that we're actually... We're actually, like, God is almost looking for co-laborers, people who will partner with him in his creation, right? We still see this at work in the New Testament when Jesus says, one of his final things is like, hey, I want you to go, and what, what I want you to do is I want you to share this message and create my kingdom all over the place. I want you to go and share this and teach people and baptize them, and I, I want you to create my kingdom everywhere you go, that you are an heir in this kingdom. Paul uses this language all over the place, that we're heirs in, the, in this kingdom, that we're princes and princesses, that we have an ownership of it. And I know it's really hard to kind of wrap your head around this, but I think a lot of us, we look at this job and we think, uh, and, and I would even say this is the way sort of other religions handle this question of like why God exists and why people exist. In fact, if you look at sort of the ancient Sumerian cultures and some of the other sort of contemporary cultures to the Jewish culture at this time, a lot of them, the way they answered this question was that there are these gods and they got lazy and didn't want to do the work and so they created people to do the work for them. That's kind of the, the, the at the exact same time this is being written, that's the sort of other narrative that we're seeing in culture. And in this situation, God is looking for co-laborers who will come in and be heirs and princes and princesses. And I know it's hard to understand what this looks like, but just think about it this way. I was, you know, sitting downstairs uh, during rush hour uh, at the sandwich shop downstairs, the Lincoln Rooster, if anybody is interested, great sandwiches, should go there, say hi to Doug. Um, But they were just slammed. There were people lined up at the, you know, at the counter, and every one of them is just slinging sandwiches as hard as they can behind. There's online orders coming in. All the tables are full. All the tables outside are full. I actually had the feeling sitting there like I should leave. I should eat my, my lunch upstairs in our offices because I don't want to take up a table because there's so many people in here that it feels like I'm, I'm keeping them from getting somebody's business. Somebody's going to walk in and then just walk out because it's too, too packed, which is awesome. And if you're the owner, right, which is my friend Doug, I had a conversation with him later. He's like, it was amazing. Holy cow, just, we had one of the best days we've had. Like, it was thousands of dollars. Like, it was just an incredible day. Like, he was jazzed, right? Because why? He's the owner. And then take a look at it. Now, his employees are awesome, and none of them probably thought this at all. But think about you. If you were working just at Starbucks, or if you were just working at McDonald's, or you were just in some sort of food service industry, when you hit that moment where everything is slammed, there's really one of two things happening inside of you. One is, oh, gosh, we are just getting crushed right now. And man, I can't wait till this is done. That's what most of us feel, right? If we're just the hourly labor in one of these situations, that's how we feel. But when you're the owner, you are reveling in every single minute of this craziness. And you want this to not stop. And you don't care how hard you work. work the hardness of what you're doing is not even a thought in your head because this is making this successful. And it's you know, driving kind of the idea of what this is all about, and this is amazing, right? I think 
most of us, when we are feeling that, like, that insignificant, like, I'm a small person and I don't know if my work matters, and... Um, I think most of us, we're looking at creation like we're the hourly labor working for some God who sits on a cloud who's being fed grapes by angels. I don't even know if that's the way it works. But we have this idea of God that he spun everything up and then put us into this and then we just work for him. But that's not the case. God is looking for co-laborers, princes and princesses who understand his kingdom and want to invest in his kingdom. And when it's working, and we're putting our blood, sweat, and tears into it, and we're throwing our backs into it, we're excited about it because it's working. Right? There's a difference in how we look at things. And I think if you're feeling that angst, the question is, you may not, it might be actually an issue of identity that is causing you to not enjoy the work that you're doing because you don't see yourself as somebody who's sharing in this labor for a purpose. That God is doing something and he is partnering with you and he is giving you, right, the identity of being an owner of what's happening. Not the hired hand. The owner, the co-laborer, this is what he's calling us to. And you're like, dude, you don't even know. I work in a cubicle all day long next to a sweaty dude. Like, that's not, that's not what's going on here. And, I, and my question would just be, do you have an identity problem before we even get into the rest of this? Do you know you're a co-laborer? Do you know you're a son or a daughter or a prince or a princess in God's kingdom? That you're an owner of all this? That God is saying, I don't want to just be up here being served by my like peasants. I'm looking for sons and daughters, co-laborers, heirs, princes and princesses. This is just a different way of looking at work. And I think when we find ourselves in that situation, we're the owner, we're thinking, man, how can we continue to be successful in creating this kingdom that God has created? This leads you to completely different questions. Maybe you're sitting in, in that cubicle all day long looking at that screen next to the sweaty guy, but really the sweaty guy is what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be connecting and sharing the kingdom and creating. It's almost evangelistic. Like You're almost supposed to be sharing this life that's possible, trying to help people find their way out of it. And I, I know even this last, last couple of years, we've even taken a step further away from our coworkers with sort of doing days online or weeks online, or maybe you don't even go to an office anymore. It's harder. It's getting harder and harder to do this kind of stuff. But God, I believe God has planted you in a place on purpose to reach people. That's what he's doing. Now, it is possible that you're not doing the right thing if you're also feeling like this career is not adding up to what you hoped it would or this job is not adding up to what you hoped it would. It's possible you should ask the question, what should I be doing? And you should make the sacrifices to follow God's lead into whatever it is that he's calling you to do. That's also possible. And I want to show you kind of the, the care that God had. So look, we're out of chapter 1 now. We're going into chapter... oh. So I want to finish by just showing you the last verse of chapter 31. After he creates everything on the sixth day, look what he says. He says, um, God saw all that he made and it was very good. Now, you, you don't pick it up on here, but if you follow along, day one, he made everything and it was good. Day two, he made stuff and it was good. Day three, made more stuff and it was good. Day four, made more stuff and it was good. Day five, again, day six, made us. And what was it? Very good. Very good doesn't come through in English. 
That sounds like such an anticlimax. It was very good. No, it was amazing. It was incredible. It was a, a beautiful creation. It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. All right, let me skip ahead to chapter two. And this is the also that's sort of like the other way of looking at, um, or the uh, chapter two's version of the events when God takes man. And I just want to point out a couple of the words that's used here. So look at chapter 2, verse uh, 15. Uh, For me, I'm still on page 1, but you might not be. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. So what is God doing here? Well, take a look. It says, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden. That word for put him in the garden, which again, in English, is just a tough translation. All this stuff is really tough translation. This is ancient Hebrew that is translated into modern English, and it just stinks okay we talk about is this poetry is this a first-hand account is this a historical account we talked about last week those questions really don't get to what's happening here this uh is full of information these original language is full of information that we don't always understand or get and this word for put him in the garden to work it and care for it is translated he rested him in the garden that God took man and rested him in the garden to do what? To work it and care for it. I think a lot of times we think of work as being something that is not restful, but that's not true. That when we're doing what God has called us to do, there's a certain amount of peace. and There's a certain amount of, at the end of the day, when you've thrown your back into it and put your labor into it and put your effort into it, that you step back and feel great about what it is that you're doing. And that's what was happening in this perfect setting that God had created. He said, hey, I want you guys to be in charge and fill and work this garden. I'm going to put you right here and it's going to create this peace and this rest in your life. So what are we, what are we supposed to do with all this? Um, well, I have a couple of things that I, I kind of just want to pull out of here and I want to kind of throw at you guys. First, this idea that God is not spinning everything up and stepping away, that God is at work. He was at work in creation. He was at work when he put us to work. And he is still connected to and at work in the world around us. The question of whether God is connected to and at work in the world around us is one of the hardest things for us to kind of connect with. And one of the, I think often when people are sort of deconnecting, deconstructing their faith and sort of asking some of the biggest questions, the main question, the one that's like really core to what they're asking is really, is God still here and at work and involved in the world around me? Because I'm having trouble feeling him or connecting to him. Or it feels like when I pray, the prayers just, I don't know, are they going anywhere? Is anybody taking these or is somebody copying these down somewhere? Like, what is there an answering machine? I'm not really sure how this is working, but it's not really working the way that I think it should. And kind of leads to this deconstruction mindset where we start questioning a whole lot of things that are connected to. Is God still at work? And I want you to know, like, Scripture tells us very clearly that God is at work in our world. That he is still involved in our daily, day-to-day, in our lives, in the intricate details of our lives. That he cares about us to the point where he is involved in all the difficulty, all the minutia, all that stuff. God is at work. He's a God who creates. He's a God who's a creative force. By the way, one of the things that he calls us into 
is to look like him when we are creating. Like when we're creating something, when we're, you know, putting, unleashing that creative force that he's put in us, that's from his image. It's something that he does that we now do because of him. Any of you who have kids who start doing the same stuff that you do, it's like a blessing and a curse sometimes, right? Like sometimes it's really cool because you're like, man, I love baseball. My kid loves baseball, right? Like, like that's cool. In my case, maybe it's like, man, I love video games. My kid loves video games, right? But then there's also the curse of it, right? Like, man, I swear too much, and so does my kid. Like, this is messed up, right? Like, you, you're, you, there are some good things and some bad things. I think the creative force, when we start putting our mind to something and creating something from nothing, right, or creating, organizing, some of us aren't maybe the from scratch creative person, but we're the, we can organize all the pieces of it creative person. I feel you admin people. I know I can't relate to it, but I feel you. We're putting the creative force to work. This is what God does, and this is what we do. He has kind of given us this, this idea that we should be at work and that at the end of the day, we should step back and say what? What? It's good. We should be doing things that are good. We should be creating things in this world and organizing things in this world to work so that it works for the good of all the people that are around us, our own lives, for God's kingdom. There should be something happening here that creates this. And so that leads me to the second idea that God, or sorry, that no, it's not God is good enough. It should have been good is good enough. I don't know if it was my typo or their typo. Uh, these are my notes. It says good is good enough. Um, this word for good, tov, is how it translates. Maybe you've heard that before, the Hebrew word for good. The Hebrew word for good is full, full of meaning. right? So this is kind of a translation of good. Uh, in Hebrew, that it's pleasant, agreeable, that it's excellent, that it's rich and valuable, that it's um, better than the comparative, comparative options, that it's happy and prosperous, um, that it's benign or kind, that it's right and ethical, that this word for tov is like um, this idea that there's welfare or prosperity or happiness connected to it. Um, that it begets other good things, that when we do something good, tov, that it creates more tov in the world, that there's, it's morally good, um, that there's a happiness associated with it, and that all things that are good fall into this category of tov. And so as God steps back every single day and says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, that, that's actually a really significant thing because I want you to notice, and those of you, I, again, I don't necessarily relate to this because this is not who I am, but I know there's a ton of this in the world. Anyone here a perfect? Don't raise your hand. I'm just asking this. Anyone here a perfectionist? Do you know what God does not say at the end of every day? He does not say it is perfect. If you're a perfectionist, I want you to understand that God does not call you to perfection and in fact, he does not call the things that he creates perfect. How beautiful is that, by the way? When we talk about being an imperfect church for imperfect people, we are celebrating the idea that things can be very good and still very imperfect. And for those of us who are striving for perfection to the point where it is wearing us out and creating a, 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 a problem for us when we work, we need to step back and say, if God was not himself 
tied up in the idea of perfection, which, by the way, he was creating perfect stuff. He's God. He creates only perfect stuff. If it was good enough for him, it should be good enough for us. We're not called to need to be perfectionists all the time. That You can create good things that are imperfect. We are the perfect example of that. Right? We are good things that are imperfect. It's one of the most important parts of our values here at this church is that you do not need to have it together and you do not need to be perfect and you do not need to look like what you think a Christian should look like in your head all the time and yet we will still wrap our arms around you and we'll still encourage you to get better and to be more like Jesus, right? But we'll do it in a way that brings honor to you, not that judges you, okay? It's very, very, very important. A good is good enough. And the, la- the sort of third idea is this, that rest is part of work, okay? We already talked about the idea that when God placed them in the garden, he put them at rest in the garden, but also God, who does not need to rest, takes the seventh day and rests. He creates and creates and creates and creates and creates, and then he rests, and he creates and creates and creates and creates, and then he rests. That's what we're called to do. And if you are working nonstop, 24-7, 365, and you are going and going and going to the neglect of your family, to the neglect of the rest of your world, you are not working in the way that God has called you to work. He has called you to rest and enjoy what you have created on a regular basis, on a weekly basis. And if you want to think through more of that idea, go back to our sermon series that we did on rest last year, where we spent a lot of time talking about what it looks like to have a rhythm of rest in our lives and put that to work in your life because that might actually be the solution for you if you're finding that your job isn't fulfilling you. It may be that you are just restlessly working and that will not create the kind of work that God wants in our lives. Uh, fourth one, God, or sorry, work is meant to be done in community. And in a minute here, Right, uh, chapter two, just past where we were, it says that he, God, looked at all of creation, and that he decided that uh, everything was good except for the fact that Adam was alone, and that's the first thing that he says in the history of all this creation that is not good. It's not tov. It's not. It's not agreeable. It's not good. It's not the way it should be. So he creates a partner for Adam, so that there would be a community of people doing the work of tending to the garden. There would be a community of people who would be doing what God did in a community as well. Right? There's a reason why it says, uh, let us make man in our image, because the, tr- the trinity of God is at work in creation. And then when he creates and gives us that position, right? he creates a community around us. If you are doing work, and you are doing it by yourself, you are not doing it the way that God intended for it to be done. It is not good. That you should be sharing that work with other people. And also, there's think, I think sometimes there's a pride there. And there's sometimes a, uh, we think a little bit too much of ourselves when we look around and say the world would fall apart without us. Right? We look at the team that we work on or the people that, and we don't want to trust them with the stuff around, uh, the work that we're doing. We want to make sure that we grab hold of it and control it and make sure it's done right. And that kind of goes back to this idea of it doesn't have to be perfect, it can be good, and it can be shared, and it should be. So that's the challenge for us, is to see work as something that God intended for us to do, something that he created us to do, and kind of gave us this picture of what it looked like. I was 
I was thinking about this, you know, like what, I, I worked at uh, Home Depot for about a year. That was another one of those jobs that was just sort of transient in my life. Uh, after high school, I took a year off from going straight to college and just worked at Home Depot, and it was, it was an interesting year. Uh, but there was a corner of the parking lot where uh, there were, let's see, I'm going to use the right language here, undocumented people that would kind of hang out in this corner of the parking lot. If you're doing a project, you would just get some supplies, and you pull over to this corner, and you just say to people, like, hey, I need somebody who can do some, like, plumbing, and you just pick up somebody who had plumbing skills. They couldn't necessarily get themselves a regular job because they weren't documented, but you could hire this person for the day, you know, I would have said they were day laborers. That would have been the way to describe this. This was like in the late 90s, so just, you know, things were a little different, I guess. I'm not sure. Um, and you would look over there and you'd say, these people are doing the lowest job in our world at the time. I probably thought that at times. Like, how tough is it to not have a regular job to go to and to just kind of be looking for a job every single day and to just kind of be ready for somebody to just pull up and give you a job, whatever it looked like, Probably going to be manual labor. Probably going to be you know something that was difficult. You're going to be doing this day labor every day. I just want to finish on the idea that work, all of it, can be seen as worship when we have the right mentality about what we're doing. God Himself was a day laborer. Just let that sink in for a second. Labored every day, different job every day called us to be gardeners and to work with our hands in that first. There was no dignity where one person has a higher level of position or a more important job and somebody else has a lower job. Every chance that we get to work is a chance to do something for God as opposed to do something for ourselves. And whatever that position is, there's dignity in that work. Whether you feel like it's the lowest thing on the totem pole, whether it's working at McDonald's or something, I don't know what the lowest thing would be. That's probably not even, that's probably awesome. It's probably great benefits comes with working with McDonald's. So I'll just use that as an example. Or whether you're the CEO of some gigantic multinational company. It doesn't matter because the opportunity for us to worship God in the way that we were created, and this is where we see in Galatians 3, this is how Paul kind of puts it. Um, boy, that doesn't look right. It's not Galatians, it's Colossians. So I'm going to read it to you. This is what Paul has to say. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And I just challenge you, or maybe encourage you, you might be in a job that you don't think is really adding up to much for the rest of the world. Or you feel like you are laboring on a daily basis and it's not really doing much for the rest of the world. But you have a chance to do what you were created for and to worship God in your work. When we disconnect the idea of worship from just singing on a Sunday morning, we do a real service to our lives because everything we do, if we are doing it for the Lord... And it was something we were created to do is a chance for us to be worshiping in what we're doing. Whether we have what we consider to be the lowest job on the totem pole or whether we have the most significant, prestigious job, on it doesn't matter. Whether we make a little bit of money or a ton of money, it doesn't matter. We have a chance to worship in what we are doing. It takes work from being labor 
to being worship. Right? It takes work from being something we have to do to something that we get to own and do because we're owners and princes and princesses and it's connected to our identity and who we are. You know, and as we kind of process all this, I know uh, I've got in me a couple of podcasts that I'm going to try to record in the next couple of weeks. Um, for sure, one on creation, another on gender, probably a little bit more conversation around that. And this conversation about work. So if you have questions or thoughts or you want to process this at all, please let me know. I'll probably throw it into the podcast so other people can benefit from it as well. But I want to challenge you and encourage you that you were called to worship. You were called to work. You were created for this. And to see yourself as an heir, as someone who is a co-laborer with God in what you do. Let me, let me pray for us as we close. God, thank you that you created us with intention and you designed us to want to work. God, I pray that our work would not just be labor, would not be just difficult or grinding, God, but that we would love what we do, that we would find ways to bless other people, that we would find ways to work for your kingdom and your creation while we go to these jobs that you've given us and provided for us. God, help us to see ourselves as agents of your kingdom in the places that you placed us. And God, for those of us who are struggling in our work, struggling in what we're, what we're doing, God, would you just continue to show us if you have called us to this place and to continue on, or if you've called us to some other thing to bring more value to what we are doing in our lives, if you've called us to something else, God, to, to wake up those passions that you created us with. I pray, God, that we would see our work as worship, that we would see our work as a, an opportunity to honor you. We thank you for being intimately involved in the details of our lives, for creating us in this way. In Jesus' name. Amen.